Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia, and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with John Pigeon, as always. And we're doing one of our favorites today. That is a Q&A. We have curated a number of questions from the Facebook group. I often try and put up a post so that people can comment below what they want us to talk about. Some questions we actually use as a more in-depth episode. So if you've asked a question and we don't cover it today, don't fear, we will get there. But the ones we're covering off on today are more ones that John and I can quick fire answer, give our opinions and thoughts, but the advice is worth what you pay for it, which it is free. <laughs> Absolutely it is. And if you want to be anonymous, just put anonymous. We're happy to answer anonymous questions because that's uh, it's all content, isn't it? Indeed. And you know, some people are a bit sensitive talking about financial situations, so more than fine. But for now, let's get into this Q&A session. Okay, so Zanar Maple got a new question, hopefully not too late. What to do if a property that manages to mostly fit your criteria, particularly the price, is a property you already know will go down in value? I'm thinking most apartments and you're really not sure if you can get positive cash flow if you rent it out later. Should you just stay clear? What if you can't really afford anything else? Ooh, there's a few little bits and pieces to unpack in that, isn't there? Big time. And and you know what? I think there's a lot of people listening who are probably going, oh my gosh, that's me. Because yes. I, I, you and I both get this all the time. Yeah. So high level, I think main two strategies for buying property, investment properties, is one, I want to achieve capital growth or two, I want to achieve cash flow. Tax benefits and all these other things are, are a side benefit. So essentially, Zanar's saying, well, I don't think it's going to get either of those things. Now, the cash flow is somewhat guaranteed because we can analyze what it's going to rent for, what the running costs are, strata, all those things, and, and versus the income that's projected, rental appraisals, what's happening in the area, what, it, what el- everything else equivalent is renting for, et cetera. We can't guarantee capital growth. But we can historically look at the last 10, 15 years in that area for that type of dwelling and say, well, how has it performed? So for Zanara, it would be, for me, what do you want out of this? Is it cash flow? Is it capital growth? What's your major strategy outcome? And if it's capital growth, go back and check the area. And maybe uh, they've done this and that's what they've came to as a conclusion. It's like, well, it's not going to grow. But just simply reading the media and saying, well, apartment won't grow because of X, Y, Z probably needs a bit more detail. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think I certainly read this as someone who is a first-term buyer because mentioning, you know, renting it out at a later date, it sounds like really that compromise between getting something that does tick their lifestyle boxes and getting in but worried about longer term, what is that going to equal? And I think so often it's a balance between the decision to buy that as something to live in which ultimately is going to be an investment or do you rent vest from the outset because whilst you know Zanara's mentioned uh it's all that you know, I can afford or I can't really afford anything else that sounds like it's area specific because if you can afford an apartment let's I don't know where Zanara's buying but let's just say it's you know Melbourne Sydney Brisbane there's a high chance for the same purchase price you can buy a house on land in a regional center most of the time that's generally how it works so Correct. I do wonder and I often do pose this question to people that, you know, seek out advice, is there a chance you could rent vest and rent where you want to live? Sometimes the numbers just don't simply stack up but you don't want to pigeonhole yourself into the only thing you can afford because that's you're thinking that's it. I think you need to have an open mind when it comes to selecting a property and not, you know, shoot yourself in the foot long term of um, buying something just to have it to live in. Yeah, totally. Or, or, or maybe just an ego thing to say, well, mm. I, I just want to buy a property and now I'm a property owner and I can tell people I own property. Like it's it's not the case, is it? We, so we, you're right. Like can we go further out and buy ourselves a house with a little bit of land that may perform better over the long term? Uh, but if she's wanting to live in it, then it's really a case of um, – these areas is all I'm prepared to live in because of the uh, the the time to get to work or my friends and family. So yeah, you've got many more options as a rent vester. So maybe looking at at that as an option if if we're not already. Biggest thing here really is what sacrifice do you make? You know, and that's that's the whole idea behind property investment is what sacrifice do you make because. One something's got to give, you know. Unless you have infinity dollars, um, it's it's always going to be a compromise somewhere. So I don't know if we've answered the question because the question was, <laughs> should I just stay clear? I think y- you should only stay clear if you've realised that's not the best decision, and the only way you'll know that is exploring all the other options. Yeah, maybe a bit more digging. Uh, I think, and and in this type of market, I don't know when this question was was posed, but let's say it was within the last month. It's yeah. very much uh, twelve months ago was a, a, a vendor's market. They mm. could demand what they wanted essentially in most areas of Australia. Now the tables have almost completely reversed, where it's uh, fast becoming a buyer's market. So to hold off another couple of months even six months to, to be able to save more of a deposit which may get you a better uh, asset might be an option also. So, yeah, would need to know how much you save and everything else. But I think gut feel if you're thinking this isn't right and I'm just doing it just to buy property, then we need to explore something else. Indeed. Next question comes from Andrew and actually this is one specifically for you, John. Right. Uh, so Andrew loved the episode where you were interviewed by me. And he's asked, is it possible for you to go into more detail of the markets where you have lived or invested, um, understanding that it's Vic, South Australia and New South Wales, or that's what we know of. (laughs) I think Andrew's looking to understand the difference in the, the positive and negative of local laws that you've experienced in those areas. And I guess what I take from this question from Andrew is trying to work out like 
what was the best one for you and why? So, yeah. Well, firstly, I'd say it was a, it was a great interviewer that that made maybe <laughs> that episode. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Vic, South Australia, New South, and, and also Queensland for reference. Andrew, now really understanding the local laws can be in many shapes and forms. It really depends on what you're doing. Now, if you're doing a development in those local areas, then there's a lot more detail that needs to go in, having conversations with council, talking to town planners, um, draftsmen, everyone, builders, the whole works. Okay, But if you're simply just buying real estate and holding it for the long term and then selling it at some stage, there's not a lot that needs to be taken into account. All we're doing is just creating that eight-point strategy that we've spoken about and just understanding what asset type we want in that particular area. Now, I will say that of those areas that, that I was buying in, I had a rent vesting strategy. So I wasn't living in any of those properties. Um, it was only the final two that I decided to live in because this is where we've settled on the central coast. But for the Vic, South Australia, Queensland, they were just all investment properties with no emotional attachment. Did I need to understand local laws? Uh, generally speaking, no, because they were just set and forget. But understanding the, the, the metrics, I suppose, and, and what assets are going to perform and what locations and, and what asset types do I need land? Is it, is it three-bedroom house? Is it, is it a two-bedroom unit? Like what's actually going to perform and what has performed in that area is probably more important than necessarily the local laws. But definitely if you're developing, you need to know the ins and outs of that. And out of all those states, what did – I mean, it also becomes property specific, but more generally, what did you find was the best state for you in terms of the extra costs as well? Like, you know, stamp duty varies so much across those four. Yeah, so Victoria uh, is number one in terms of stamp duty costs. It's it's the highest of any, um, any, any state in the country. So that needs to be taken into account for sure. Um, in respect to – Land tax never been an issue because of that diversification into other states, which which is one part of uh, our strategy talk, isn't it? Is to to understand well, okay, if I've got six properties and they've they've all got land, they they might perform for us well, but I'm going to be slugged with land tax at some stage if not already. So can I go and get another asset in another state that'll perform just as well? Um, to avoid that land tax or prolong the land tax, I suppose. So that's maybe one thing. So stamp duty land tax are probably the two. Um, when, you're, when you're selling property, and, and hopefully we don't do too much of it, but if we need to, the costs are generally the same. I've found around about 2%, 2.5% max of um, uh, is what the agent will, will charge you. And then the marketing fees vary depending on how heavy you want to go with that, that marketing campaign. Um, but, yeah, buying in stamp duty... If it's your first home, you want to live in it, then in a lot of cases you're exempt. But Emily, you and I have spoken about how the uh, threshold on that is still pretty low, so a lot don't qualify for that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Andrew. But I think you the first place I would go. So um, if I go back to the the, the house that I, I actually built in Adelaide. What the first thing I did was obviously the the research behind what areas we'd like to do that and what fits my price point, uh, but then talking to that local council and understanding what their development process was going to be, that would be my first port of call if if I was you, Andrew. Definitely, and I think it's so important to understand the variances if 
long-term the strategy is around development and not just a long-term set and forget, then you can never do too much research on local area councils. Getting really involved in the due diligence process is probably quite key for success in that field. Yeah, and and for me it was... Uh, I was excited and motivated by that because that's what I wanted to do and sink my teeth in it. For others, it might be just a too hard basket and, and you just don't do that. You might just outsource it. Um, but a, a lot of people think these councils are, are big, bad bodies that just uh, we can't be touched sort of thing. But you can ring a town planner and, and either book an appointment or just say, look, I'm, I'm looking at buying this property in this particular street and I'm potentially looking at knocking it down and, and building two townhouses for as, in, as an example. Um, is there anything that might stand in the way of that? And they can high level look at it and say, okay, no, there's precedent in the street or there's these are the things you need to look out for and, and generally you, you should get a helping hand from most councils and um, yeah, so that's a good starting point. 100%. They're there to help even though the stereotype of them seems to be that they just make things difficult, but that's actually not the case. And uh, don't don't be deterred also if you do call and they ask you to send an email through. They actually seem to be quite – it must be how they measure their KPIs or their performance or something around replies. Yeah. But I have personally found councils very responsive to an email request of understanding certain things so it's documented correctly. So yeah, keep cool. that in mind too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just uh, looking on a micro level, you'll get a council call centre uh, you're not going to ask that question to the to the front desk. You you've got to be yeah. put to through to the town planning section and and then go from there. Now, something I just wanted to note for a future episode, uh, a question that comes from Nicola Smart. Uh, Nicola has asked, I would love to hear more women's property stories, especially those who have done it on their own. Nicola, thank you for um, putting that suggestion forward as to what future episodes might hold. Um, John and I have actually mapped out, we've done a bit of planning today. Um, I mean, we always plan these episodes. Correct. Yeah. Uh, we have done a bit of planning and we've definitely um, put some allocation in for some real life stories. Um, and we're really, really keen to bring those to you from the community that listen, you know, to the to the show and have benefited from understanding more about the property space along their journey of home buying or investing. Uh, so yes, we love hearing from listeners and we will have more stories coming your way. Yeah, totally. And, and and dare I say it, if uh, if you have got an awesome story, um, we, we can't guarantee that you'll be on, but if you've uh, we've if you've got something you think is value to the listeners and you're happy to, to um, talk about it, then yeah, we'll we'll entertain it. So Kim Stark says, I would love to hear about renovations that add value and how much you should spend so as not to overcapitalize. Hmm. Very good one. Now no more important time right now than looking at the cost of how to improve something is a... I want to preface this process of value adding with the fact that you're not supposed to know everything. Like I think a lot of people that go into a value adding exercise make the mistake of thinking what is valuable to them but not what is valuable to the end user, which is obviously ultimately the buyer, if you're, you know, doing up to sell and have a profit or even, you know, the valuer who's coming through, potentially you may be a refinancing, you want to pull some equity out. Convenience things, like I always think about, I'm just going to take my place, for example, that I'm renting. Now, 
there is one fundamental thing in this house that I love, but I don't think it adds much value. And that is automatic blinds. I can press two buttons and there's 14 blinds in the house that go up and go down all at the same time. Now, when someone's walking through a property, they just, they don't care if they're automated or not. It's really not that big of a deal. Probably costs them a bit to get it sorted. They just care that there's blinds or window furnishings, you know? So it's those things that make life easier or are a really a novelty that I think personally don't change the value drastically. Mm. Uh, And that's where people get really caught up in these cool gadgets. They go to home shows and they see all these cool tech things or, you know, play on the fundamentals. But I think you've really got to strip it back and work out where the money should be spent. Yeah, absolutely. So I I don't know, Kim, if you're looking at owner rock or investment, but let's say for the minute it's owner rock. Now we're going through this process at the moment. We're not renovating, but we're building a new home. And the builder forgot our underfloor heating. Right? Oh gosh. <laughs> at what point did they realise they forgot that, John? <laughs> when it was too late, basically. Um, <laughs> oh. Now the, the tiles were down. Um, it was only going to be in the bathroom. So okay. we sat back and, and had a little moment. And Amy and I said, well, look, it's actually not the end of the world. It it was actually an item, maybe to the automatic blinds example of, well, we live on the central coast. The average temperature is 26 degrees all year round. Um, It's not like we're living in Tasmania or Victoria where we get extremely cold, freezing winters and underfloor eating is a necessity. So we looked at it and said, well, it's actually not a – a, a big deal. We're okay with it. It was just one of those items that do they add value to the house? Maybe in Melbourne, maybe not on the central coast is, is probably our, our thought around that. And we're building the house as though who would want to buy this from us one day, even though we probably never sell. Um, and I think whether it's an investment or owner rock, we've just got to be logical and think, well, what do most people want in this world? Not what do I want, but what do most people want? And that, that's really the important part of it, isn't it? And, and how much cost uh, are we prepared to put into that uh, or how much money are we prepared to pay to get that item into our house and is it going to reflect the end value if we're going to sell it? Indeed. I think probably my mind always goes to when I've got buyers walking through a property, what makes them feel like it's complete and what presents well. And usually it's flooring, window furnishings, paint and landscaping. And like just basic nice greenery with the black bark with a spray painted fence usually does the trick. Like they're minimal things that really look low maintenance. They're done. They're not offensive. Like don't go wild on, you know, coloured tiles or feature walls and stuff like that. Just keep it simple, I think. White paint, non-offensive carpet, timber flooring, blinds and landscaping. And I, I, beyond that, I mean, maybe there's some little things like adding a dishwasher is always a tick box item for, you know, older style properties Um, or maybe changing a splashback. But really... I wouldn't go too extreme if the purpose is to add value to either gain more equity or to sell. 
think yeah, people yeah, yeah, it's underestimate. It's got to be user friendly, doesn't it? And and yeah. I was always told at the at the beginning of this whole journey uh, that the shed or the garage um, make it appealing for the male, and the, the <laughs> kitchen bathroom for the female. Now we've we've evolved since then. We have, uh, but uh, I think. Yeah, as you said, like a dishwasher, is that a necessity for most people? The answer to that would be probably yes. Mm. Um, do we like uh, walk-in robes? Absolutely, they're they're fantastic. Do we like built-in wardrobes? Absolutely. We don't want to have to bring our wardrobe from one house to the next. Uh, so the little things um, that that maybe don't cost a whole heap of money is probably what you would uh, you would concentrate on. And uh, again, look at what's selling in the area and what people have done and why have they got record dollars for those type of properties. Is it because they're four bedrooms or five bedrooms? Is it because they've of the open plan layout? Is it because they've got a um, dishwasher or a, or a shed, whatever it is? So, yeah, have a think about that. But you're right, Emily, it's, you've got to keep it pretty generic to cater for most people, don't you? For sure. And yeah, just stick to those key tick box items. And if you're unsure, I would go and attend a few open homes of places that are on the market at the moment and see, you know, what presents well. A lot of people, particularly when they've vacated the home and they've styled it ready for sale, a lot of the time they've had an express reno team come through uh, and do literally a week's worth of work to get all those key items done to add value to the property. Even maybe have a chat with someone who does like there's businesses that do that for a living, literally just express renos for um, ready to sell. Yep. Have a chat to the, those teams and see what what they suggest. I'm sure you'd get some ideas from there too. Yeah, and if you speak to someone like that, they're on the ground doing it. So they're seeing what's working and what's not. All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back and get into it again. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Plushcare.com/slash/weightloss. So Jenny Bowditch says, what questions and information should I be advising my accountant before buying an investment property? Very important and one part of our eight-point strategy that I've spoken about in a previous episode. Uh, so I'll kick this one off, Emily. I think, first of all, we're, we're alerting them to the fact that we're looking at buying a property. 
right? So generally what that does is gets the juices flowing of conversations. So, okay, uh, whose name do we want it to be in? So we need to have an understanding of uh, finance structures. So we may engage the mortgage broker into this conversation and say, well, what what is going to be easiest from a servicing point of view and, and borrowing capacity to go and purchase? So if we're, if we're buying in a company or a trust, that's going to be a little bit more complicated and a lot more paperwork for the, for the broker and everyone concerned if that's the case, but you may need that. So it's important to have that conversation early with your accountant rather than later so that you can get that finance um, structure and the finance process rolling in respect to borrowing capacity and servicing. So they commonly will say, well, uh, personal names is is majority of what happens and then looking at the percentage that that might be. So if it's if it's more than one of you buying the property, you, you'll either be joint tenants or tenants in common and you can uh, then look at the percentages. So you might be 50-50 or you might be 90-10 or 99-1 whatever your, your accountant advised. And I was speaking to someone about this yesterday. At the end of the day, you take the wins or the, the, the tax benefits when you own the property and take a hit when you sell the property or vice versa. Um, so I think it all comes out in the wash. So, uh, but, but speak to someone that you know is a trusted source in this space and does deal with a lot of investment property purchases as an accountant because a lot of people don't actually have an accountant. How important do you think it is for the your accountant and your mortgage broker to have a working relationship? Do you think that impacts the outcomes at all or does it matter if they're in isolation? Yeah, look, I know there are a lot of one-stop shops and I'm not a massive fan of one-stop shops, but I think they don't need to be in the same office. They don't even need to communicate with each other. But what they need to understand is what's the other one wanting the client to do, right? And it usually starts with how much can I borrow? Okay, if it's in my name only, this is how much you can borrow. If it's in two names, this is how much you can borrow and then get that purchase price sort of lockdown or, or, or a ballpark figure, then you go into the account and saying, look, um, in my personal name, I can borrow X. Uh, what do you think the best buying entity is for, for us as a, as a couple or as an individual? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And you're right. A lot of people don't actually have an accountant as in they haven't really needed one or maybe they're just on their own tax returns because it's been simple and easy, but come the point of being in a position to buy an investment property, certainly get some advice around the best way to do that for you and your circumstances. Yeah, totally. And and, you, and you, once you're buying properties as as investments, like you're beyond doing a turbo tax return online, aren't you? You really need uh, an accountant in your corner as a key person on your team that you can rely on for the next 10 or 15 years. And uh, that, that individual may change. You may supersede that current accountant, but the, the, the key is getting a good one in your corner and, and obviously go to sort your money out, get help and uh, we'll uh, put you in contact with one if you need one. Very good. Well, moving on to another question, we have one from Jess Cotton and Jess has asked, what questions should I be asking of a property manager to know they are the right fit? Great question and I do think a lot of the experience of being an investor can be a make or break when it comes to the property manager because 
you are putting a lot of trust in an individual to ensure that they are on top of things so you don't have to be. So in terms of best fit, I think there's a few criteria that I would start off with. Number one would really be their track record of looking after other people's properties. So looking at their reviews, their ratings. I mean, you don't take them as gospel necessarily, but if someone is doing a really good job, chances are they've got reviews and testimonials to back that up. And I think that's one indicator. Probably the other thing that I would see as an additional tick box item of a property manager would be, do they own properties themselves? Because I feel like they just have this level of understanding and treat them as if they are their own. And it's not an essential tick box, but I do think it does set them apart from those who don't. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. It's, uh, and and uh, I think you, you've got a stereotypical property manager in my mind and, and it's the, it doesn't have to be female, but it generally is. Uh, and they've been around the traps. They're, they're probably in their late 40s, early 50s. They've uh, it, they they feel like your grandma almost. Uh, <laughs> they they take care in everything they do. It's a young they, grandma, 40s, it, it, is, it is actually a young grandma. <laughs> okay. Maybe they're 60. Okay. Um, started young, right? Okay. But they take care, they communicate well over the phone and, and they get instant rapport. So they're there to to make the journey as, as easy for you as possible. If, you, if you're dealing with someone that's been there five minutes, uh, has no experience in the role, doesn't own property, um, all these things are starting to add up as though, okay, I'm going to choose someone else that's got a bit more experience and I can get along with a bit better. So, yeah, that, that's a, a really important point. Um, another one is to understand just as a, a business, how many properties do they manage and how many staff have they got? So work out your staff per property ratio and 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 hopefully they're, they're giving you the real facts and how long have their staff been working there? So generally, uh, I find in a lot of businesses, there's high turnover in, in the property management team. So if your property manager's been there for 20 years, I love that. Very rare to find. Just uh, a benchmarking point to something you just said, John, about how many properties does the company hold and how many staff do they have? Generally speaking, the ratios I have heard is that for one property manager, it's usually sitting between a portfolio of 80 to 100 properties um, at any given time that they're managing. If you're hearing of someone managing like 150 plus, chances are they're a real high volume business, but not great service because you just can't physically have the time to look after that many um, property portfolios. So yeah, just if you're asking those questions of a property manager, that's a good good benchmark. I also think there is some merit in engaging a property manager who it's just a property management company. Uh, sometimes when it's actually originally been a real estate sales office and they've sort of tacked on rentals because it was made sense for the business to do so, it's more a business decision than a like a passionate decision. People who love yeah. property management want to be in property management have a property management business. So I think that speaks a lot. And, and, and what you're generally saying is as a real estate business, their value of their business is in the rent roll, meaning yes. that they can on-sell that rent roll to someone else or um, live happily ever after and retire. But I think 
That's a really important one. And there are a lot of those starting to appear, aren't they? Because they can see a gap in the market where there isn't that customer service because they are taking on too many properties because that's going to increase the rent roll, which increases the value of the their whole business and uh, the flow-on effect comes through to the consumer. So yeah, really important one, that one. Um, yeah. So on the whole real estate agent business and shout out to all the lovely real estate agents around Australia or New Zealand and everywhere else in the world listening, a good real estate agent, a, a good sales agent doesn't mean a good property management team either. So you might have an outstanding result from a, a purchasing point of view. It doesn't mean that their property management team is just as um, diligent and professional and and qualified and experienced to deliver the same result. So yeah, good questions. Um, I've actually, I've got, uh, as part of our clientele, we've got a hundred questions to ask our professionals. Our, our clients get a copy of that and they just go away and ask questions, right? I've got 10 questions for our property manager. So I'll actually get um, the guys to throw that in the show notes if anyone wants as well. Uh, but yeah, you can't ask enough questions, can you? For sure. That will be a great resource for people to have access to that. Thanks for sharing. No worries. Very generous of you there. Sharing is caring. (laughs) (laughs) Just to round out this episode, so we've covered off quite a few questions. Like I said at the beginning, there are some questions that have been asked that warrant a whole episode in themselves. So we will get there. We always make our way through and we appreciate you contributing to asking questions. Uh, But just on a general note, John, how are you finding things at the moment? We're recording this in the start of November 2022. What's the sense check in the investor world at the moment? What are you seeing happening? Oh, we're licking lips out there at the moment, Emily. Um, <laughs> what, which oh, translates oh, to... <laughs> which, which translates to 12... <laughs> we like ice cream. 12, 12 months ago, it was very much a vendor's market, wasn't it? And and a lot of markets were hot around the country and properties were flying out the door. A lot of them weren't even getting listed uh, to, to almost come full circle at the moment where... A lot of potential buyers are sitting on the fence waiting to see what interest rates are doing, where they're going to land as a, as a norm. Um, a lot of, uh, I suppose, potential upsizers, which form a large portion of, of who buys property, are also doing the same thing. So it's giving us great opportunity to go in and buy property that's not moving that quick. Instead of having a 14-day a days on market, we're having 40 days, right? And we're coming back on the 45th day offering ridiculously low prices. So that's what's happening in, in my world in, in a lot of areas that we're helping clients in. Yeah. What are you seeing? Very similar. I think the biggest thing being in the owner-occupier space is that I'm it's a hard time getting people to sell their large family home to downsize because I always say you can never have too much house, right? Like, yes, the idea of downsizing is commercially viable at the right time, but for a lot of people, if they're not going to get a great sale price, they're like, well, I'll just stay put. And also, where am I going to go? Because there's not much stock transacting. So I'm seeing a real challenge in getting good properties for my upsizer buyers. Mm -hmm. I'm not struggling too much or not seeing, I guess, a lack of stock at the other end, which is more the apartments and units, villa units. Uh, Certainly more power in negotiation. Interestingly, the biggest negotiations I've been able to be a part of recently have been in 
what would have been a hot spot 12 months ago. So the sea change, tree change areas for reference right. point. It's like past Frankston, so like Frankston South, Mount Eliza, Mornington, properties that were selling at about 1.3 back then are now maybe scraping 1.1.5. Wow. Maybe 1.2. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've seen, which I didn't expect. I just thought yeah. that was going to continue. So, yeah, navigating this market to anyone who's looking at buying very much take the motto of you need to be in it to win it mm. and you might have a ch- you really might have a chance whereas 12 months ago you'd look at a quote range and go well add 10% and I maybe might be in with a shot at the moment if you've got the quote range or below like just try that's yeah. my my no, advice you're right like something that's advertised at say 7 to 750 mm. last year would have gone for 780 now you've got a chance at 680 sort of thing that's yeah. that's where what what I'm seeing it as well. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and I suppose a message to those listening in that are sitting on the fence waiting for the the markets to or the sorry, the interest rates to stabilise and, and create a new norm, that's when everyone else is going to jump back in as well. So there's probably this next three, four, five-month window where we're playing a game that not many are actually turning up to, so that gives you great opportunity. So if you if you're umming and ahhing, uh, it it may be worth uh, ahhing. <laughs> yeah, I echo echo that sentiment definitely. I think there's real opportunity at the moment. Less competition, and once it becomes the norm to buy again, everybody jumps back on, and then you wonder why you can't afford things again because it's you know everyone's bidding higher. So yeah, yeah, I think the smart people are getting themselves in shape to transact between november and march Mm. and uh yeah then we see what happens next year totally all right very good well good chat as always great questions thank you for uh, sending those through everyone and uh, we look forward to getting into ears sometime soon indeed until then We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.